0: Well, good morning, church family. How are we doing today? Good. Hey, good. Hey, I don't know if you heard, there's an election happening. Yeah, right. I'm sure you've heard because my mailbox has got full every single day and the commercials are going every day. So I want to take like two, three minutes to make everyone really uncomfortable and just kidding. No, um, just real quick, I feel like I need to touch on it very quickly um, before we move on. And I I just want to point out a couple of things leading into Tuesday. Number one, the Bible doesn't tell us to vote or how to vote because democracy wasn't a thing back then. (laughs) In the first century, uh, when Jesus was there and the apostles were there, it wasn't a thing. And so it doesn't say do or don't, and it doesn't say if you do, here's how. Um, and so therefore, like all the other things that Scripture does not speak to because of the different eras and ages, we have to mind Scripture to find the principles in Scripture and the values of the heart of God to help us make discerning decisions um, about things spe- that Scripture does not directly speak to. And so a few things I'd like to say about voting and politics. Number one, I want to remind us all that God places kings and remove kings, both good ones and bad ones, for his purposes, okay? So that helps us um, have a, a, a biblical view on, on how we should uh, view these things, that God has been sovereign over the nations throughout history, and really to disagree with that is to turn the blind eye to a ton of scriptures, Uh, And so I I remind you of this because the amount of fear, worry, and anxiety that can revolve around political cycles and political messaging. Uh, I mean, my goodness, the mailers that I've read and the commercials I've watched, pretty much every single candidate is the Antichrist. (laughs) Number two, the fact that God is sovereign over it doesn't mean we don't have a part to play in his plan. Uh, In ancient theocracies, kings were appointed, and most often through conquest. God gave victory to different rulers at different times for his purposes. People still showed up to the battlefield and fought. Um, And so there is a part to play. In America, God places and removes kings not through conquest, but through votes. God not only ordains the end, but the means to the end, and so here we are. It's not, thankfully, we're not going to battle with swords and spears to try and have our kingdom have a certain outcome, Uh, but we do have a part to play, I believe, in voting. Number three, Christians ought to be a force for good in every way that we can. Amen? Christians ought to be a force for good in our community, and our society, and when we have an opportunity to do good, we should. Amen. And voting is a way that Christians can facilitate good in the land by attempting to appoint people who will legislate justly and morally. Four, how should we vote? Get out your pen and paper. I'm going to tell you every single candidate to vote for. <laughs> Just kidding. I'm not going to do that from the pulpit. If you want to come talk to me about your opinion and my opinion on the side, I'd be happy to do that. Uh, but I don't believe that endorsing candidates is the responsibility or the right um, Uh, of the church and I believe that you will stand before God one day based on your convictions and I'm not going to sit up here and tell you vote for this person or that person. I may sometimes talk about things that sound like policies and that's because scripture and Christianity sometimes applies to things that sound like policies and so if you ever hear me getting political, it's actually just trying to be biblical and so uh, but all of that to say... Uh, What you have to do is determine according to the Word of God, your own conscience, your own convictions through prayer and asking the Holy Spirit to guide you what is most important to you and vote accordingly. Where do the things rank and tier into what is important to you? Another good thing to ask yourself is, is there anything that's a deal breaker for you? For example, for me, I can't put my head on the pillow at night and sleep with a clear conscience voting uh, for abortion. And so I... That may make it sound like I'm just a single issue voter. I'm not a single issue voter, but some single issues can be deal breakers for me. And so if I'm looking at multiple uh, candidates and two out of three of them are for that, that's two have disqualified themselves in my book. And so that's another helpful paradigm, I think, to utilize. Uh, For you, it can be any matter of policies. Is there something that's a deal breaker for you? Vote with a clear conscience. And finally, let me remind you, most important of all, if you really, really want, if you really want your community, your state, your nation, your world to change, then you need to care about evangelism more than politics. I'm gonna say that one more time. If you really want to see the tide turn in your community, in your state, in your nation, then you need to care about evangelism above politics. You need to place discipleship above debating. You need to place praying above canvassing. You need to place heart change above law change. Still participate, still debate, still vote, but remember, Christian, your citizenship is in heaven. And we are pilgrims passing through. You may be American, but you are Christian first if you are to faithfully follow the Lord. And politics, like every other area of life, is where our faith does permeate into those matters and issues. It ought to. You can't be a Christian and have it not affect your politics. But please do not let politics become an idol that becomes more important to you than the Great Commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you even to the end of the age. Do your part, stay focused on the mission of Christ. And one of the primary paradigms I bring to the ballot is what is going to help the gospel mission move forward by the bubbles I fill in here. All right, let's pray. God, we humble ourselves before you, we're thankful scripture teaches us how great you are, how powerful you are, that the nations are pieces of your board, that, that the nations are pieces of your plan. Lord, I ask that you would give us wisdom this week as we go to vote. Lord, I ask today as we get into your word that your Holy Spirit would grant illumination, help us to see the truth, that you would bring transformation and change hearts and that we would not be the same. In Jesus' name, everyone says, amen, amen. Amen. You ever have someone come up to you, call you, text you, sit down with you and say, hey, we really need to have a heart to heart. So whenever someone says that to you, How often are you like, yay? Not very often, because normally that means someone wants to confront you about something or challenge you on something, maybe intervention-type conversation. And although those conversations a lot of times can be hard and not necessarily desirable, they're good. They're good conversations where someone is trying to talk about something that matters, something that's important. Today we're talking about heart-to-heart because... (laughs) Here's the fun. In our reading plan that we're in, we have two weeks in the book of Romans. I know a church, I know a pastor that I respect, that his first pastorate, he took the first 10 years of his pastorate teaching through Romans. Today's my 10-year anniversary. I've been doing it wrong. I could have been teaching Romans this whole time. All I'm trying to say is Romans needs a lot more than two weeks. But we're in the year of the Bible following this reading plan and therefore then asking, Lord, what do you want us to take away from this? And I am so blessed and so encouraged to hear over and over and over people saying they're reading their Bibles more than they ever have. And to hear people out in the commons talking about what they read in the reading plan, man, it's so much better. And maybe it's just because the Packers are bad this year that people want to talk about something good like the Bible. (laughs) Sorry, shots fired. See you next week at the Cowboys game. Uh Uh-oh. Lord, help. What did I do? Jesus, help. Romans, right? Let's go to Romans chapter 1. Paul's writing to the church in Rome, which is a church that is full of a bunch of Jews and also a bunch of Gentiles. It's in Rome. And um, there is a strong Jewish presence there as well at, at this point in history when Paul wrote this letter. And so he's speaking to these people. Romans, some would say, is is Paul's magnus open, meaning his his greatest work. Um, And it's one of Paul's most important letters. I think it's one of the most important books of the Bible. I would encourage you to spend as much time as you can in Romans. Romans is, is so powerful, so important, so necessary for the believer. It's deeply theological and also very practical, Um, It's a wonderful book. I don't have much time today, uh, and so I'm just going to jump straight in here to Romans chapter 1. We're going to pick up in verse 16 after he's done his general opening and greeting and encouragement. Verse 16, he says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it... The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This this two verses, uh, verses 16 and 17, is Paul setting the context for the entire letter. He he greets them. He opens up, welcomes, prays, uh, tells them how he misses them and all that kind of stuff. And then he shifts gears transitioning through these statements after saying, I I, I want to come back and preach the gospel to you guys. And he says this, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. You know, we live in modern Western culture. Paul lived in and wrote to ancient Eastern culture. We live in an individualistic society. They lived in a communal or a collective society. Some of the other differences: we live in a society that has a paradigm prioritizing right and wrong. In ancient Near Eastern culture, they had a culture that prioritized honor and shame. And there's many cultures in our world today on the other side of the globe that still have almost all of those paradigms that I just said. Where it's collective, not individualistic. And where it's about uh, the the community rather than it is about what, what me and I want and what's best for me. And also, not about just what is right and wrong, but about the honor and shame that would be cast upon your family, your community, your kingdom or whatever by the decisions that you make. Paul, when he says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ it would have landed differently to the Roman's ear than it lands to our ears. Because we're sitting here going, "Why, why would he be ashamed? Of course he wouldn't be ashamed. It's the power of God for salvation. Why would he be ashamed of the gospel? Because he's talking to a people who are being shamed in a culture of honor and shame, a people who are not only risking death, but are also all the ostracization. I don't know if that's a word. I just made it up. Who knows? Probably, maybe. Either way, he's talking to a people who are, who are having to consider everything that they might lose. And, and in some senses, in some ways, your family's rejection, your community's rejection, the shame that would be heaped upon you can in some senses be harder to swallow or stomach than death. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it's the power of God for salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, he wasn't saying only Jews and Greeks can get saved. In this sense, Greek means, is is a general term that was stamped also like Gentile, anyone that's not a Jew. Let's keep reading. Verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Doesn't that sound like today? You look around the world at what people are saying is good or bad and people taking things that have been true for thousands of years and saying, well, maybe that's your truth. Because of the unrighteousness in their hearts, they suppress the truth. Verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Paul's saying, everybody knows. Paul's saying, every single person on planet Earth, looks around at creation and their hearts are saying there is a creator. The same way you have never ever looked at a painting and thought, I wonder if there's an artist. You look at the painting and go, there is an artist. In our hearts, we know. This is why societies for all of history have sought after and worshipped seeking some God. Because your heart tells you when you look at creation that there is a God. But because of the unrighteousness in people's hearts, they suppress the truth. And he says, because they know they can look and see, they're without excuse. Verse 21 For though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up and the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And worshipped and served the creature rather, rather than the creator who is blessed forever amen everyone knows deep down in their heart scripture also tells us that god has set eternity in the hearts of men that's why everyone wonders what's what's the meaning of life that's why everybody wants to know why are we here because it's in their heart they see the evidence and god has placed it in their hearts and beyond this, we see that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. See, what's the core issue here in, in verse 25? Because they changed the truth or exchanged the truth about God for a lie, here we go, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Think about every sinful temptation that you experience in this life. They all come back to this. Loving creation rather than the creator. Think about it, lust and sexual sin. That's loving bodily pleasures, creation, rather than the creator of sex who gave it to us for our good and his purposes, to be fruitful and multiply, to unite a husband and a wife together as one. Think about greed, envy, covetousness, loving stuff, creation, rather than the creator of the stuff. All the stuff that God has blessed you with ought to be stuff That rolls your heart's worship up to the creator of the stuff. That it doesn't terminate on the stuff, but rolls up to the creator of the stuff. So that when you're delighting in a delicious meal, you're not just going, oh man, I love steak. Steak is so good. You're going, man, thank you God for for making this. Thank you for deciding what it would taste like. Thank you for giving me taste buds. Because you could have made everything like oats. God didn't have to give us all these flavors, but he did. Why? For the same reason that when we see the sunrise, we would go, whoa. There's a God who has put so much nuance into the joys and pleasures of this life that would roll our hearts up to awe and wonder in him. Think about it. Pride, gossip, jealousy, selfishness that's loving ourselves creation rather than the creator and when we love the creator above the creation we respond to him in humility not pride we respond in gratitude not entitlement this is the root of all the sinful things we wrestle with is taking our eyes off the good giver of these gifts And becoming captivated by the gifts. Parents, you know how joyful it is to your heart to give gifts to your children, right? To see their reaction, to see, oh, wow. And you're hoping and longing for that turning back to you with the joy and gratitude in in their eyes. Thank you, mommy. Thank you, daddy. The hug, the embrace. It's what the father longs for from us. That we would recognize that every good and perfect gift has come down from him. Paul goes on to say in verse 32 that those who practice such things deserve to die. Now, before we just go, man, it sucks for them. That's us too. Okay? Now, let's skip ahead really quick. I'm going to come back to chapter 2. Let's skip ahead to chapter 3. Because what we do is what I just said. We go, oh, man, those evil people. And I've read this before, and I'll probably read this passage multiple times a year because I think we need to hear it. Romans 3, 9 through 12. What then, are Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, all people, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. And I love this for the person who's like, well, I mean, okay, Nobody's perfect, but he's like, no, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for, God, uh, seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Paul quoting the Old Testament here to try and affirm the truth from Genesis chapter 3 that when Adam and Eve sinned and welcome sin into the world, every single person after them except for Jesus through the virgin birth was born with a sin nature from their father, Adam. Every single one of us are born loving sin. And because of that, this idea, oh, I'm a pretty good person. It's a lie from hell. The idea that I'm pretty good is a lie from hell that wants to damn you. Well, I mean, come on, look at Look at so-and-so. I mean, you've seen the Jeffrey Dahmer thing on Netflix, right? I mean, <laughs> that's bad. I haven't watched it. I've heard about it. I, 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 that's bad. He's bad. I'm not, I mean, I'm not like. No, not one. No one. People always wrestle and struggle with, why do bad things happen to good people? There's no such thing as good people. Every single one of us are deserving of death. Because of our sin. Thanks be to God that God in his grace and mercy and love and kindness and generosity and patience did not just hand us over to what we deserve. But he gives us new mercies every morning, saying, I will not give you what you deserve. Beyond that, I will be gracious and give you what you do not deserve. See, God's grace will never be amazing to you if you haven't seen that you're a wretch. I think the song would be rewritten from the hearts of many people. Amazing Grace, you know the song. Everybody knows the song. I think if it were what's in the hearts of many people came out interpretation into the song, like if what's in your heart had to come out, I think the song might go like this for many. Mediocre grace, how bland the sound. That improved a decent person like me. I once made a couple bad choices, but now I make a lot less. Had blurry vision, but now I got Jesus glasses. God's grace is not amazing to you until you look in the mirror. And see how hopelessly far your goodness is from God's standard. Until you have wept and grieved in your heart over the sin that separates you from God. You have not been thankful for how amazing his grace is. You have not seen the beauty, the wonder, the awe of how gracious, how kind, how good, how generous he is until you realize how deep in debt you have been and or were. I was 26 when the Lord finally came in and changed my heart, even though as a pastor's kid, grew up hearing all the gospel, knew that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. It's because when I was 26 was when I finally stopped trying to make everyone think that I'm awesome, and I finally looked in the mirror and said, I'm a wretch. And that's when the Holy Spirit came in and changed me. Let's flip back to chapter 2. Chapter 2, the Apostle Paul then goes on to confront hypocrisy. People who say one thing and do another. I'll start reading in verse 3. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, not abusing his grace? Verse 5, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, You are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He's calling out hypocrisy, people who see these wicked acts and look at people and say, don't do that, how dare you, don't be like that. And might know how to say all the things but do the different things. I remember a a quote, if you grew up in church in my age in my era, Uh, There was an album that was the album called Jesus Freak. Anybody know that one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I write a couple of of 80s folk up in the house. Yeah. There was a song on there called What If I Stumble. And the song opened up with a quote from uh, Brennan Manning. And I've got the quote up here. It says, The greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, walk out the door, and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. Now, I think there is great truth to this quote. I wouldn't 100% say that it is it because I would also say the other thing hand in hand that causes atheism is what we've talked about, the love for sin. That people deceive themselves because of the love of sin. But I think Brendan Manning is also on to a really valid point that yeah, absolutely, I know people personally who have looked at the way that people talk and then the way that they live and have said, I don't want anything to do with that. And here's the hard part. It's all of us at one point or another. To some extent, I'm so thankful. I was having a conversation two weeks ago and uh, I was having a conversation with a brother in Christ and they were uh, sharing with me something about someone uh, or they were asking about some. Uh, something with someone who used to go to church here. And I started the conversation off well by explaining something, trying to use wisdom and discretion. And then a couple of moments into the conversation, pride began to uh, come into me, uh, well up out of me. And I began trying to defend myself, and I began uh, gossiping. And this brother in Christ had the courage, thankfully, to say to me, oh, I don't want to participate in gossip. <sighs> Thank you, brother. All of, it's easy. It's easy to slip into hypocrisy and into sin because I'll get up here and say, I hate gossip. And I do because God hates it. He hates it. He hates it. And it's so easy to just... Slip into those things. That's why we need each other. I'm thankful for this brother's rebuke in my life. This is what Aaron talked about two weeks ago, right? How sometimes we have to call each other out, making sure we've got that 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 plank out of our own eye before we try and help someone else with their splinter. But all that to say, hypocrisy is easy. We like to look at the Pharisee and go, oh, "Don't be like that, that dude." But it, it, it's subtle. It's subtle. And all of us have the capacity for it. So Paul's confronting that, saying, don't be like that, because Jesus, or Paul is saying, my name is profaned, or, or God's name is profaned when we do this among the Gentiles or among the unbelievers. That we damage the witness of the gospel when we say gospel and live anti-gospel. To the, hip, to the hypocrite, Paul says, hey, this, your hardened and impenitent heart is the problem To those in chapter 1, worshiping the creation rather than the creator, it's a matter of the affections of the heart, a love for sin. Playing the hypocrite also, Paul said, was because of the hard and impenitent heart. These are heart issues. And now I want to jump ahead to verse 28 in chapter 2. Paul's talking to them because he's talking to this audience of Jews and Gentiles, and he's got a bunch of Jews who have been wrestling with, well, we've got to obey the law, and we've got to do all these things. Our circumcision really is important and really matters. And you've got the Gentiles, those who are not Jews, going, do we have to be circumcised too? And so he talks a whole lot about circumcision. Like, if you read this whole paragraph, it's like, man, that's a really uncomfortable paragraph. But you pick up in verse 28, he says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter or the law. His praise is not from man, but from God. Now, let's imagine for a second we are all first century Jews. If we were all first century Jews, we would look at each other and assume, this is just a little awkward conversation, it is what it is, okay, we're going to have fun with it. We would just assume all the men are circumcised. Why? Because that's the covenant symbol of being a Jew. You would have been circumcised on your eighth day after birth. And so we would look at one another and just assume. It's not like you went up to someone, met them, said, Hi, I'm Stephen, what's your name? All right, are you in covenant with God? Because I am. I'm sorry, that I'm not trying to be crude, but I want to help us see something. Because if, if you had the external picture of looking like a Jew, there were assumptions about what could not be seen. And Paul is saying right here, hey, the true Jew is not the one whose circumcision is of the flesh, but of the heart. And since they didn't go around introducing themselves that way, they had to make assumptions about what was unseen. And who's the ones who really knew? Who knew if a man was uncircumcised or not? Well, the father who performed the circumcision with the rabbi or the priest, they're the ones who saw and knew. Eventually, someday, a bride would see and know these intimate roles. In the same way, we can all look at each other and go, you go to church, you serve, you do all the external things, you've got to be a Jew. And obviously, we flip the conversation off of Judaism into Christianity because that's where we are. We sit here and we look at all these things, And we can go, oh, see, they know the Lord. They're in relationship with God because of X, Y, Z. And only the father, the priest, the bridegroom to the bride are the ones who actually truly know the intimate places of the heart. You can learn and do all the right things and be dead in sin. It's never been about what's on the outside, but what's on the inside. It has never been about what's on the outside, but what's on the inside. If church is a place where we simply teach people how to be good Christian boys and girls, and we don't confront the heart that is dead in sin, all we're doing is creating tidy unbelievers. People who know how to do the right stuff, but have no true heart change. No true transformation that motivates those types of behaviors that we ought to have. And what we do is we take church and we try and teach moral behavior. Uh, Matt Chandler coined the phrase as moral therapeutic deism, where you want to behave for God. That's why the gospel has always been and will always be the message. The gospel Pastor Stephen, it feels like you talk a lot about the gospel and sin and our need for a Savior. Like, don't you think we get it? That's actually why I talk about it so much. Because it's easy to convince yourself that you've got it because you're circumcised, a.k.a. baptized, catechized, disciplized, giving servingized, serving community group-ized, etc. And you can do all the motions... And have a dead heart. You can do all the right stuff and still be dead in sin. And the most dangerous part is that you can learn how to do all the to-dos and therefore get good at convincing yourself that you're a Christian when you were never honest with yourself about your need and didn't see the wretch in the mirror. Paul is saying a true child of God is not just someone who has all the right stuff on the outside, but someone who has the right stuff on the inside. Chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Romans are an expert, caring cardiologist, running echocardiograms and running stress tests and running CT scans, trying to help you examine so that they can come back to you and say with the utmost care, because they care, hey, you've got heart problems, and if you don't address them, you will die. See, when the cardiologist comes to us, like real-life real cardiologist, when they come to us and they tell us something like this, we don't respond with, uh, well, I mean, I feel like I've got a pretty good heart, Doc. Like, I mean, have you seen Joe Schmo? My heart's got to be better than his. That's not how we respond. And just because, uh, or, 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 and so, so thanks doc I'm, I mean it but I feel like I'm pretty good so thanks doc but I, what actually actually beyond this what makes you think you know my heart like we don't talk to the cardiologist that way right no why because they've done echocardiograms and they've done stress tests and they've looked at your heart on on CT scans and all that kind of stuff and they are experts on hearts and they go what do I know well uh I know a lot from a lot of books, and I know a lot from these diagnostics that you got heart problems. Just because you've studied and learned some stuff from that book, meanwhile, the cardiologist thing I know your heart because I saw it. Well, Doc, I, I love my, I'm sorry, I, I get what you're saying, but I really love my greasy, fatty, sugary foods, and who likes exercise, so... Thanks, but I don't know. Uh, well, I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what. Okay, okay. Nobody's perfect, right? Okay. So uh, I guess actually what I'll do instead, I'll agree with you a little bit, and uh, I think you're probably right. I could probably be a little better because, you know, nobody's perfect, right? So I'll, I'll make some habit changes, okay? No, 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 my friend, the cardiologist says. No, you don't understand. Let me make this clear. Your only hope is if you get a new heart. You don't realize your condition is so bad that just trying to change your behaviors, your habits, your routine is not going to cut it. You need a new heart. Oh Doc, we're talking transplant. That's hard. That's huge. That's a big deal. And I could take you to Ezekiel chapter 36, Jeremiah 31 where both Old Testament prophets prophesy about a day when a new covenant would come, when God would remove the stony, stubborn, rebellious heart and replace it with a new heart, tender and responsive, a heart of flesh that God puts his law in our hearts. You say, well, Doc, I can't do that. I can't, I can't change my heart. He would say, no, you can't. But I can't. I can do that. Well, doctor, doesn't doesn't that mean I'm going to need a donor? Doesn't that mean somebody's going to have to die to give me their heart? Yes, he says. I've got just the guy. My son. My son is going to lay down his life willingly to give you his heart. Not just so you can be a better version of yourself, but so you can have life in him his heart within you. I've already arranged the donor. He's my son, and he's never consumed an unhealthy product in his life. Not only will he make you healthy, but his heart is supernatural because his heart will not only change your health, but his heart will also change your appetite. You know how you hate kale? (laughs) Yeah, when you get that transplant and my son's heart is inside you, it will actually make you hungry for kale. It'll make you start liking what's good for you. You know how you don't like coming to see me because I care about you enough to tell you about your condition even though you'd rather pretend it's no big deal? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, well, when my son's heart is in you, you're actually going to want to spend time with me more and more. And guess what? The more time you spend with me, the more you'll begin to behave like me. The more your life will look like the healthy cardiologist, the great physician. See, Christianity has never been about turning bad behaviors into good behaviors. It's always been about changing bad hearts into good hearts. God taking the sin from our flesh, that circumcision representing cutting off the flesh, The Holy Spirit comes in and cuts off the flesh of our sinful desires, fills us with the Holy Spirit of God and changes our desires. This doesn't mean that we'll never desire bad things again. What it does mean is that we're at war against those desires. And we don't just go, I was born this way, so I guess that's who I am. No, we go, that's why I got to be born again and made new. It has never been about what's on the outside, but what's on the inside. So how do we respond To the person who needs a new heart, if you're here this morning and you've recognized, I need a new heart, I'm a wretch and I've seen it for the first time this morning, admit to the divine cardiologist that you've got a heart problem. Say, you're right and I've been wrong. And pray. And confess your sin and ask him for forgiveness. Ask him to fill you with his Holy Spirit. Ask him to give you a new heart. Ask him to change you and transform you. He will. To the person who has hardened their heart, that we heard about earlier, pray, beg, ask God, plead with God to soften your heart to forgive your sin, confess the hard-heartedness that you might have, ask God to soften your heart because you can't soften it on your own. And finally, to the person who has the new heart, to the person who has the spirit of God inside of them, pray and ask God to help you remain faithful, to grow you in spiritual discipline, to empower you to continue to obey and serve with joy in your heart to continue the healthy diet of the word of God, to continue the exercise of walking by the spirit, which we'll continue to talk about next week. Let's pray. Lord, we need you. I thank you for your word that helps us see and know the truth. Lord, I ask if there's anyone here who needs a new heart, convict them of it right now. I ask you to open their eyes, help them see and believe the truth, help them confess their sin and turn away from it and place all their hope and faith in Jesus Christ. To the person who has become hard-hearted, I ask that you would break and soften that hard heart. Make them tender and sensitive to your Holy Spirit again. Return them to the joy of their salvation. Lord, for the person who does know you, I ask that you would fan into flame the gifts inside of us, that you would fill us over and over again with your spirit, that you would help us walk in the spirit, not in the flesh, pleasing and honoring you. In Jesus' name, amen.